Thank you, music team. This morning we had a visitor comment that uh, he wasn't used to a church where people were singing all around him. He said usually the singing comes from the front and everybody sort of listens and sings softly. And I'm just very thankful that we have a church that loves to sing. That means the world. And the Lord rejoices to hear our joyful noise. So thank you for singing. Thank you for the leadership, Wesley and others. Well, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. It's been a number of weeks since we've been in our study in the book of Hebrews. I want to remind you that the epistle to the Hebrews was written to struggling Jewish Christians. For some, they found that the cost of discipleship was heavier than they anticipated. And there were some even tempted to turn back, maybe to revert to Judaism, to return to the fold, as it were. Some possibly to abandon the faith altogether or to make serious compromises on the faith. I'm, re- I'm reminded of the episode that John describes in John chapter 6 where Jesus presents the cost of discipleship to the masses that are following him and they realized uh, that it wasn't simply going to be Jesus constantly feeding their bellies and it tells us that many left and followed him no more. And Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and says, what about you? Do you want to go away as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And the continuing theme of Hebrews is there is nowhere else to go. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And so our author here, the faithful pastor, writes this epistle to struggling believers, urging them, urging us to persevere, reminding us that Jesus alone has these words of eternal life. And so in chapter 6, we find this emphasis on perseverance in the faith, not falling away, not abandoning the faith, not turning aside. And then he calls us to redouble our efforts to show more earnestness in our persevering. As I read in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 6, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, my last message a number of weeks ago was entitled Faith and Patience. God is calling on us to trust in him, in his word, and his promises. That's faith. But he's also calling on us to wait on him. To act and to fulfill his promises in his way and in his time. That is Patience. I'll talk more about that in a few moments. But I want you to think for a moment about the nature of faith. When someone goes through a really hard time, sometimes we hear people say, his strong faith carried him through. Or something along those lines. Uh, We hear people who have a strong faith or a great faith or, 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 or an unwavering faith. And sometimes we sort of look, hear that and we say, I don't think my faith is really all that strong. Is my faith sufficient to carry me through such a trial? Well, I have good news for you this morning. The primary issue is not the strength of your faith. It's not the greatness of your faith. The primary issue is the faithfulness of the object of your faith. It is the faithfulness of the one in whom you are trusting. For example, let's think about Islam for just a minute. It teaches that if a follower dies a martyr's death, he is ushered immediately 
into paradise. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment, how much faith it would take for a Muslim uh, jihadist to take a suicide vest and strap it on his body, go into a crowd of people and push that button and detonate it and blow himself up. That is an enormous amount of faith to believe he is going to be ushered into paradise. Unfortunately, all the faith in the world is not going to change the fact that he is believing a lie. He is not going to wake up in paradise immediately or ever because the primary issue is not the greatness of his faith. It's whether or not what he believes so very sincerely is actually true. And if it's not, and it is not, he will be disappointed. So we come to our text this morning, and the question is not so much how much faith do I have. It is, is God true to his word? ESV has a headline, the certainty of God's promise. So we might ask, how much faith does it take to benefit from his promise? Well, that's not, again, that's not the primary issue. The primary issue is not the size of our faith. It's the faithfulness of our promise-making God. His promise, his word, his faithfulness is our sole anchor. By the way, I've taken that title from the uh, album by Michael Card, uh, which he wrote uh, expounding various passages in the book of Hebrews called Soul Anchor. I commend it to you. You can get it on Spotify uh, if you like. But let's look at four things in this text. First of all, the nature of God's promise, the nature of his promise. Secondly, the fulfillment of God's promise. And then thirdly, the kindness and condescension of God in how he made his promises. And then finally, our abiding, our rock-solid hope. The Lord Jesus. So let's look first of all at the nature of God's promise in verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, the writer here is referring to a very specific event in the life of Abraham. Uh, In Genesis chapter 22, uh, Abraham has been called on God to do something truly perplexing. You remember God had promised Abraham, you're going to have a son. And through that son, I'm going to multiply you and you will become the father of many nations. And your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And 24 years later, Abraham, who is now 99 years old, and his wife Sarah, who is 89 years old, still have no son. And then God came and said, a year from now you will. And sure enough... Isaac was born. And at some point, Isaac was probably a young man. God did the most perplexing thing. He came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the son you love, Isaac. I want you to go to this mountain in Moriah, the land of Moriah. Go to the top, build an altar, and sacrifice your son to me on that altar. Now, wait a minute. God had promised, Abraham, you're going to have a son, And that son is going to be, uh, through that son, you're going to become the father of a great nation. I'm going to multiply you greatly. And then God says, but I want you first to put him on an altar and take his life. Now that humanly, by human reasoning, that makes absolutely no sense at all. But Abraham didn't rely on his own reasoning. He believed God in spite of the fact that what God had told him apparently makes no sense. 
He believed God. He trusted God. He believed that God knows what he's doing. And we'll read later in chapter 11, Abraham reasoned that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He thought he genuinely was going to have to take his son's life, but that God would raise him from the dead because he believed God's covenant that he would multiply him through his son, Isaac. So he took Isaac. He bound him. And he was ready to plunge the knife, and the Lord stopped him and said, Abraham, stop, and there's a ram in the thicket that now becomes the sacrificial offering, the substitute, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our substitute to pay to die in our place. And after Abraham fulfills this assignment, we find in Genesis chapter 2 this commendation Beginning in verse 15, I believe it should come up. There it is. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring shall, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's us. Because you've obeyed my voice. Now the focus of the text in Genesis 22 is God's promise to bless Abraham, to multiply him. He says, because you have obeyed, I I will keep this promise and I will bless you. But the author in Hebrews takes that text and he focuses our attention on one key component of this promise. One important feature that we find in verse 16 where God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. I will surely do this. Now, God's promise to Abraham really represents all of the promises that come to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God had promised to bless and to multiply Abraham. That's more than simply a promise to give Abraham a big family. It's a promise, it's a covenant that establishes for Abraham the, 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 the nation of Israel, but more importantly, the line of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. God greatly blessed Abraham, and he blessed his people through Abraham, but he blesses the entire world through the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole earth is blessed, and now we who are in Christ become the chosen people of God. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The, the people of God are no longer simply the physical descendants of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And so all the promises that come to us in the gospel are rooted in this promise that God makes to Abraham. God promised Abraham, I will surely bless you. I will multiply your descendants, as many as the stars in the heavens and the sands on the seashore. The promise comes to us in John 3, 16. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is the promise of the gospel. If you are believing, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would trust him, we can be made perfectly righteous before God our Father, adopted, justified, reconciled with the certainty that one day we will 
see Jesus face to face and become like him because we will see him as he is. That's the hope. That's the promise of the gospel. First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter 1, 4 says, God has granted us great and very precious promises. And these great and precious promises focus on the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And there's a temporal reality and there's an eternal reality. God will bless us eternally with eternal life. But in the meantime, he provides for us. He protects us. He completes the work which he began in us. That's the nature of his promise. Well, let's look secondly at the fulfillment of the promise. In verse 15, we read, uh, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, in verse 12, we were told to imitate the faith and the patience of those heroes of the faith. And the focus of our imitating is their faith and their patience. These two essential ingredients to obtaining that which God has promised. Faith means you believe what God says is true. Not just intellectually believe it. You believe it so much that you're actually trusting in him. You're staking your life upon him. You're putting all your eggs in that basket as it were. You are trusting God. That's what faith is. It's active. You trust him. But secondly, patience means you're waiting on God. Not only trusting, but you're waiting in trust, waiting in faith, recognizing that God will fulfill his promise in his time and in his way. And faith and patience, these two are key character qualities to cultivate in the Christian life. It tells us in verse 15 that Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Isaac was born. Isaac grew up. He bore sons. And you remember it was through Jacob that the the line continued. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 patriarchs of the children or the nation of Israel. But more importantly, down through the ages, the seed of Abraham comes to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior, not only of the Jews, but of the whole world, all who put their trust in him. Now, I want to remind you, we're called to emulate the faith and the patience of Abraham and the other saints of old. I want to remind you the nature of waiting on God. We have something, an idea of what it means to trust God, to believe him, to believe his promises. But waiting on God, patience with God may seem unfamiliar to some of you. I want to remind you, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but the word patience here, it's used in verse 12 and it's used again in verse 15. It is, the, the Greek word is macro, which means large, thumia, we know the word thermal has to do with heat. And so macrothumia is like a long boiling point. We don't melt down, we don't boil over. Uh, we are long-suffering, as it were. And the Bible tells us that God is patient. He's long-suffering with us. And the interesting thing about this word is it's always used to apply, or it's always applied to our involvement with difficult people. There's some people that just, they try your patience, right? And we're difficult people, and God is long-suffering toward us, patient with us. Now, there's another Greek word that is also frequently used in uh, the the, the New Testament, and it is hupomone, and it means to remain under. And it has to do with steadfastness or endurance in the face of difficult circumstances. 
There's a, a clear distinction in the way these two words are used in the, in the Greek text. And it, we never read that God has perseverance in that sense because there are no difficult circumstances for God. But we're called to run with endurance the race marked before us. And we're told the testing of our faith produces endurance or steadfastness. And in Hebrews, we're called to be steadfast. But here, we're called to exercise faith and patience or macrothemia. And the reason is because sometimes it's difficult to wait on the Lord. He's made these glorious promises and then it just seems like forever. When will you fulfill your promise, Lord? I'm waiting. It's difficult. It's challenging. And faith in the faithfulness of God enables us to wait. It means we live with a sense of anticipation, with a sense of expectation, but we never take our eyes off that prize. We never lose sight of the promise of God. In second, or excuse me, in Titus chapter 2, one of my favorite passages, speaking of the work of God in us, it says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That doesn't mean Jesus saves everybody in the world. It means all kinds of people, every type of person. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is what his grace does, the impact. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing or the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave for himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The impact of God's grace on our lives is to transform us, to make us live in the present age with with carefulness, with uprightness, with godliness, but also to look toward the future with an eager anticipation, waiting for the the appearing of the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the nature of the Christian life is waiting in faith. The Christian life is not like uh, approaching a, a, uh, a, a vending machine. You, you put in your money, and these days you can swipe your, your card or your, even your smartphone sometimes. And, and the payment is there, and you push the button, and immediately what you have asked for is delivered in that little uh, uh, area at the bottom. And you reach in, and you get it. And if you put in your money and you push the button and nothing happens, you start shaking the machine and banging on it and you're trying to find who can I call to to make sure that I get my money back or I get what I ordered. We don't wait patiently on vending machines, but the Christian life's not like a vending machine. God makes glorious promises, infinitely greater than anything you can find anywhere else. But he tells us we must wait. And faith is demonstrated through patiently waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And waiting is not easy. We live in a broken and fallen world. Things do not go the way they ought to to go. In this life, we experience heartache and disappointment. We experience grief and loss. We experience loneliness and all manner of other trials. We find ourselves waiting Sometimes feeling like we're in a holding pattern, living in limbo as it were. Waiting for things that are really, really important, that make a difference in our lives. And sometimes it seems like that waiting dominates your attention. A single person who's 
wrestling with loneliness, longs to be married, and they're waiting for God to fulfill the longing of their heart. Or a married couple who's longing to have children, and, and, and for some reason, in their case, it takes much longer than they expected. I know that. My, my wife and I went through uh, years of infertility, and the waiting can be, in some cases, excruciating to your faith. Others experience illness, and we think, okay, you, 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 you treat this illness and then you recover, but it seems like that recovery period takes so very long, and it lingers, and it, it, it lags, and there are setbacks, and we must wait. And in some cases, that illness will never be healed this side of glory, and so we must wait for our glorious new bodies in heaven, and we wait in faith. Or a brother or sister who's suffering with depression. And some of you have experienced that. Statistics tell us that a very significant portion of our population will go through some time of depression in your life. And it's interesting, some people may appear to be joyful. And the world is going great for them. And then the next time you see them, they're depressed. What happened? And if you're in the midst of depression, one of the biggest challenges is simply wondering, will this veil of darkness ever be lifted? Will I ever laugh again? Will I ever experience joy again? That's one of the big fears of a person wrestling with depression. They're waiting, and it's painful. Most Christians, at some point in your life, you'll go through a period of spiritual dryness, The Puritans spoke of God withdrawing from us a sense of his favorable presence. It doesn't mean he's not with us. He says, I I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. But he withdraws that experience or that sense of his favorable presence for a time. And we feel spiritually dry. We read our Bibles, but it just just seems like words on the page. We we pray, but it seems like uh, the ceilings are brass and our words just bounce off the ceiling. We gather with the saints, but it just... It just seems like like gravel in our teeth or dust in our mouths. And we labor to lay hold of joy, and we can't find it. And we labor to lay hold of God, but we can't find him. And like the psalmist, we cry out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And so the psalmist says we must wait on the Lord. In one of these psalms, in Psalm 37, the psalmist says, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Whatever else you're waiting for, it's a spiritual experience, and we must be waiting on the Lord consciously while we pray for whatever other need presses in upon our hearts. But our lives, our Christian lives, are, are, are marked by waiting. And these, these times of waiting are essential to the growth of our faith because it teaches us to walk by faith and not by sight. teaches us to rely on what God has promised and not, not on what we might feel. teaches us to ignore the whispers of the enemy that says, God is not with you. God is not faithful to you. You, you can't trust him. He might be faithful to other people, but not to you. And 
like Christian in the book Pilgrim's Progress when the enemy is whispering blasphemous thoughts in his mind. He simply has to stick his fingers in his ear and run down the, 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 the path toward the celestial city crying out life, life, eternal life. Sometimes our waiting involves fierce temptation. But like Abraham, we must believe God and we must wait for God to act. It's something I've observed. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others. Sometimes when a significant trial hits your life, there's this initial period of intense trusting. It's almost like a spiritual adrenaline rush. And your heart is trusting in the Lord. And you can't explain it. It's that peace that surpasses all comprehension. And you're like, God is with me in this amazing way. And I'm so thankful he is holding me up in the midst of this trial. And people say, how do you do this? And you simply say, it's God's grace. But then the trial sets in. And it wears on and on and on. And that spiritual adrenaline wears off. And we find ourselves in the Psalms of Lament saying, How long, O Lord? Years ago, my wife was going through a serious time of depression, and she said, I feel like such a failure because I can't get hold of this joy. And I'm like, well, You're persevering. When every emotion tells you not to, that is heroic because you are believing God is faithful. Even when you can't see it, you can't touch it. You can't feel it, you can't explain it, but you're believing it. That's heroic. And that's what God calls us to. The Christian life is marked by waiting in faith for the fulfillment of his promises. Thirdly, I want to show you the kindness and the condescension of our God in making these promises. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of this promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, the oath and swearing by himself, by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We read here, God swore by himself. In Genesis, it says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea. Now, the promises of God are so beyond anything you and I can ever comprehend. When we read in uh, Romans chapter 8 that the glory to be revealed far outweighs present suffering. That that present suffering is not worthy to be compared with that glory to be revealed. I cannot comprehend of a glory that makes human suffering that I have witnessed pale in significance. It's beyond my imagination. And so we must believe what God says rather than what we can comprehend of or what we can imagine. We must believe it and then we must wait in patience. But I want you to notice when God makes these promises, he recognizes the difficulty of believing something so unbelievable. And so he swears, he takes out an oath, he swears by himself. In doing so, he accommodates our weakness. You'd think it would be enough for God simply to speak. Because after all, verse 18 says it's impossible for God to lie. 
that should be enough. But God doesn't simply speak. He swears out an oath. You know, too often our own words prove unreliable. Isn't that true? And there are a lot of reasons why human words, human promises are are unreliable. Uh, For one thing, it's not impossible for us to lie. And sometimes people make promises they have no intention of keeping. We're, you know, just, just, just to, to, to settle the, the tension, just to, to, to quiet somebody down. Oh, I promise this will be taken care of. And you know you're not going to do that. People do that. Another reason is that we're finite. We, we fully intend to do what we say, but, but there are circumstances we don't know about that totally change the situation. And had we known of those circumstances, we would have been more careful in what we promised. Another reason is we're, some of us are forgetful. Fully intend to do what we say, but we get distracted. We get, uh, we get uh, off on some other direction and we forget to do what we said. So certainly we would do. Another reason is because we have finite ability. We promise more than we can deliver. Have you ever, uh, have you ever worked with uh, a service person or a construction person and they promise you the moon and in time you realize there's no way in the world they could keep that promise they don't have the ability to do it sometimes we can promise things that uh, we we intend to to, to fulfill but then we find out I I don't have what it takes I thought I did but I, I can't fulfill what I promised and there are many other reasons that our word can prove unreliable but none of these human realities applies to God His promises are always absolutely reliable because he is all-knowing, all-powerful, unchanging. His promises are yea and amen. And that's why his promises serve for you and me, we who know him, as an anchor for our souls. And because our words sometimes prove unreliable, we find it necessary to take oaths or vows. Many of you have stood at the front of this church or another church and you've taken a solemn vow before the Lord to love and honor and cherish your spouse until you're separated by death. We take that vow before the Lord. If you appear in a court of law, you're asked to put your hand on the Bible and they'll say something like, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God, you're promising or you're taking out a, you're an oath based on someone higher than you. Because that should settle the matter. We invoke God's name as a witness to the truthfulness of what we testify. Well, here we find in verse 17 and 18 that God swears by himself because there is no higher authority than he is. There is no one greater than he is. But he wants to assure Abraham, absolutely, Abraham, you can trust me. He wants to assure you and me, we can trust him. And again, the key issue here is not the strength of our faith. It is the faithfulness, the reliability, the trustworthiness of the one whom we trust. And so in making this vow and swearing by himself, God condescends to our weakness. Now, it's interesting. Why would God feel it necessary to swear if it's impossible for him to lie? His word ought to be enough. But again, this broken, fallen world, there are so many obstacles to our faith. 
So many things that wear away and say, are you sure? In Romans chapter 4, Paul emphasizes the challenges that were before Abraham to really believe God. It says in Romans 4.18 and following, in hope he believed against hope. Believing against hope. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb and she was about 90 years old. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Again, Paul is holding up the faith of Abraham as an example to us, but Abraham's faith was great because he was fully convinced that God is faithful. That is the definition of faith. It's being convinced that God is faithful to his word. Every visible evidence that Abraham could look at would say, this is not going to happen. Any reasonable person would look at Abraham's age and at Sarah's age and say, this is utterly impossible. And so God graciously accommodates Abraham's human limitations, his frailty, his weakness. He condescends to seal his vow, his promise with an oath. And so Abraham believed God. Abraham waited on God. And in due time, Abraham obtained what he was promised. Not simply having a son, but the fulfillment of that promise that the entire nation, the world is blessed through him, ultimately through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, are you a Christian? Have you fled to Christ for refuge? Are you trusting in him? Let me ask you, do you find yourself sometimes having a difficult time trusting God? Trusting him enough to obey him when obedience is difficult and shortcuts seem so much easier. Trusting him enough to wait on his timing and not grow impatient or lose hope or lose heart. You may not have a specific promise that says you will get married, you will get this job, you will have children. You may not have that kind of specific promise like Abraham had, but we have the promise that he is with us. He will never forsake us. We have the promise that we will have peace, not as the world gives peace, a peace that passes all comprehension. We have a promise that, that in Christ we can bear much fruit and his joy will be in us and our joy can be made full. And sometimes we wait long to see those promises fulfilled. Are you struggling there? We have a promise that says God knows what you need before you even ask. And that he will, uh, he will meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He promises peace. He promises his own presence. He promises our provision. Everything that we need. And sometimes we can't sense any of those things. And so we find it difficult to trust and difficult to wait. And in those moments, your focus cannot be on what you see. And it cannot be on what you feel. Your focus must be on the un failing promises of our faithful God who will do all that he says. He swore by himself and he will do it. And the result of this oath, verse 18, says, by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That is really the theme of the book of Hebrews, to hold fast to the hope set before us. And he says that comes, that encouragement to do that comes through the promise, the oath 
given to us by our God. And we can hold fast to that hope even when we do not feel particularly hopeful. Now, we use the word hope differently from the way the Bible uses the word hope. Oh, I hope this wonderful thing happens. I hope I get this job. I hope I uh, get accepted to this, uh, this uh, program. I hope I make the team. I hope my team wins. I hope I have children. I hope I get married. We hope all these things. They're things we sincerely desire, but there's an element of doubt. I can't be sure whether it will actually happen or not, but I hope it will. When the Bible uses the word hope, that element of doubt is not there. It is a confident assurance. It's a certainty based on the promise of God. Hebrews 11 uh, defines hope, faith. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. And this hope, there's no, there's no element of doubt to it. It's a certainty. God will do what he says. And so we can hold fast that hope. It serves us as an anchor for our souls. And so let's consider finally this abiding rock solid hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Verse 18, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Two things he tells us about this hope. One, it's an anchor for our souls. Now, now kids, you know what an anchor is? You know what an anchor's for, right? If you're in a boat and you go fishing with mom and dad, usually dad, and you get to the place you want to stop and you don't want to drift. So dad takes the anchor out and he throws it in the water and it goes down and it hits the bottom and now your boat won't drift. It stays there until the anchor is lifted. And an anchor is intended to keep you where you need to be. And this anchor of our souls is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it keeps us from being tossed back and forth. When the waves and the, 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 the storms of this life beat against us. When the seductive voices of this life try to pull us away. We hold fast to this hope and it keeps us anchored. It keeps us moored firmly to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's similar to the parable that we read in Matthew 7 when Jesus talks about two builders. One built his house on the rock. He had a firm foundation and we're going to sing... Uh, how firm a foundation, I believe, at the end. Is that correct? Speaking that uh, this, this, this house is built on this firm foundation, and when the storms beat against it, the waters rose, the house stood. But there's another house. didn't have an anchor. It's built on the sand. No foundation. It probably looked the same as the house that was built on the rock from just a, a, a casual glance. But... When the winds blew, the the rains fell, the waters rose, that house shifted off that sand and it was destroyed. And when our lives are founded, anchored in Jesus Christ, we have this hope and it gives stability to our souls that the world knows nothing about. They have no anchor. They have no stability. They have no ability to be steadfast in the midst of the most intense storms of life. So that's the first thing. Hope gives us an anchor. But secondly, this hope fosters a lively and life-giving communion with God. Verse 19 tells us it enters into the inner place 
behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now this harkens back. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, just a page over. At the end of Hebrews 4, we are told that Jesus is our great high priest. And it says, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter the rest. Excuse me, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. And the heavens, passing through the heavens, is imagery of the high priest on the day of atonement passing through the veil in the temple, into the holy of holies, the inner place. And so in, in, in Hebrews 6, it says this hope enters in through the curtain. It's referring to that imagery of going, the priest going through the veil, but it says Jesus has passed through the heavens once and for all. So we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That hope leads us into the very presence of our God, that we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, because we know that Jesus has been tempted every way that we are. He is compassionate to the temptations and the struggles and the afflictions we endure and we also know he is utterly for us he's given himself for us if god did not withhold his only son how will he not also with him freely give us all things so we have this firm hope that not only gives us stability but it gives us confidence to enter into the very presence of our god that lays hold of what jesus provides for us he went into the holy of holies and he didn't come back out like the high priest who would go in every year he went in and he stays and he remains and says you come and this hope leads us into his very presence it secures for us all that we need in christ we've received mercy and grace to help in time of need and i want you to see the focus of this hope shifts just a bit we have the promises of God but now we have the very word of God the Lord Jesus and he is our hope he is our confidence he is our great high priest he is the forerunner he went in before us and he prepared the way for us and bids us that we would come and commune with him and receive from him that which we need he has become we read a high priest forever According to the order of Melchizedek. Now the, the earthly priests would serve for their lifetime and then they died. And it, the privilege fell to some during that priesthood to become high priest. Generally it lasted just for a year. But for a season of time and then it passed on to another. But Jesus is the great high priest for all time. Of an utterly different Type of priesthood. It's after the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek, he's this mysterious character who's, who's, uh, who's introduced to us in Genesis chapter 14. And we're, we're going to read about that next week. The, the writer of Hebrews mentions him in chapter 5. And then he mentions him again here in chapter 6. But in chapter 7, he'll explain exactly what he's talking about. And that, the Lord willing, is what we'll focus on next week. But again, Psalm 110 speaks of our Messiah, who is a priest forever, according 
to the order of Melchizedek. If you're a Christian, you have fled for refuge to Jesus Christ. He is your hope. And this hope is a vital aspect of our life in Christ. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a lively, it's a life-giving trust. It's a confident expectation that Jesus Christ will do for us all that he said he will do. And we're called to hold fast that hope. Never let go. Never lose sight of it. Keep that hope burning brightly in your heart, in your minds. Remind one another of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Encourage one another with that glorious hope. And then with faith and with patience, we wait on God. We believe God that he will fulfill all of his promises in his time and in his way. We read that Abraham waited patiently in in God's time. He obtained the promise. I love this quote from one of the commentators I read named Richard Brooks. He said, the wait was worth it, wonderfully worth it, even though at times it must have appeared endless to Abraham. It is and will be no different for us who now believe. That is how the Christian life is. It is worth it. There will never be a time when that hope has been fulfilled that we look back and we say, I wish I hadn't had to wait so long. We'll be amazed at the goodness and the grace and the promise of God. You may look at these promises and you may wonder, is this ever going to be fulfilled? Am I ever going to know real peace in the midst of this storm? Am I ever going to see this trial lifted? Am I ever going to see Jesus face to face and be done with sinning and with shame? You look around at the circumstances of your life and, and, and everything that you see and everything you feel seems to contradict those promises. It may feel for a time like God has forgotten you. That's what the psalmist says in some of the psalms of lament. And so what you see, what you feel, your senses undercut, as it were, your confidence in the faithfulness of God. I want to ask you to do something for me. You profess to know Jesus Christ, and especially if you're struggling right now. You're, you're, you're trying hard to lay hold of joy, and it seems elusive. I want, you to do so. I want you to look around this room just for a minute. Just look around at the other people here. And I'm guessing your first thought is, everybody else is enjoying something that I'm not. They all have something I can't seem to lay hold of. Right? Look deeper. What do you see? You see, brothers and sisters in Christ who are trophies of the grace of God. And you, dear child of God, are also a trophy of the grace of God. You have brothers and sisters who love you. And they might not have told you this morning they love you, but they're committed to you because they're committed to this church. I remember once at Furman, I was in college and I was feeling particularly lonely and particularly feeling sorry for myself. And one of my closest friends and I were talking and he looked at me and said, you know, Jamie, sometimes I think maybe you're the only friend I have here. He was feeling sorry for himself too. We'd both been spurned by girls. And so we're wallowing in self-pity, and it was the stupidest thing in the world because if we had said to any number of our brothers and sisters in Christ on that campus, I'm hurting, they would have been there in an instant. And my friend, hear me. If you say to brothers and sisters in this room, I'm hurting, they will be there in an instant because that's what the body does. When one member suffers, other members come alongside and suffer with it. You have something precious 
You have something wonderful and glorious. And I know Christians throughout our country and other parts of the world who don't experience the life in the body of Christ that God has given us here. It's a precious thing. And if what you have in this room is the only thing you have, that's still glorious. And there's reason for joy. But we have far more in Christ. We have all these promises. We have the forgiveness of our sins. And we have this hope. Hold fast to that hope and do not let the enemy spoil your hope. Waiting is difficult, but we have an anchor for our souls. Sometimes it seems like that wait will never end, and we might even say, I'm tired of waiting. Why won't God go ahead and fulfill the promise and lift this trial or this burden or this affliction? And you may cry out like the psalmist, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Christian, hear me. If he has you in a holding pattern, if he's calling you to wait, with patience. He is molding and refining and deepening your faith so you learn to live by faith and not by sight. You learn to rely on the certainty of his promise and not on the fickleness of your own feelings. He wants us to learn to live in light of those glorious promises, that steadfast hope that is an anchor for your soul. And here's a sweet thing. I've seen this many times over in my own life, and I've seen it in the life of other Christians who struggle. I call it, in the meantime, graces. You're going through a deep valley, and you're not at the end yet, and it's still heavy, but, but, but there are these times of refreshing. There are these tokens of God's mercy and kindness that confirm to you, I am still with you. I have not yet lifted the burden. I have not yet resolved the issue that weighs upon you so heavily, but I am showing you through the kindness of a, a loved one, through the unexpected provision of a need, through a moment of joy that you can't explain from any number of sources, these in the meantime graces that say, I am laboring through this valley, this veil of tears. And God has not chosen to lift it, but in the meantime, he has shown me some grace that sustains my heart, sustains my faith, sustains my hope so that I can yet wait upon the Lord. This, dear Christian, this is our God. This is our Savior Jesus. He is our hope. He is the anchor for our souls.